everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. I hope today's conversation inspires you and builds your faith for the moment you are in right now. Know that God's love for you truly changes everything. Enjoy the message. You may be seated. Prepare yourself for a horrible sermon today. Uh, I find it really overwhelming to see everybody. And uh, it was really one of the most amazing periods of my life for three and a half years recently to be one of your pastors. And uh, to run into people and hear little bits of what's going on in your life, both joys and sorrows, is, uh, is pretty, <laughs> pretty meaningful. And uh, I, I'm just so glad to see you. Uh, one thing that gave me intense happiness <laughs> was seeing last week at the All Nations service and seeing how uh, God is blessing our church in that way. To hear an amazing message from Carlos, um, what a privilege. So can we pray for a second? Dear God, if this is to be a performance, let it be a horrible one. But if this is to be a time when you would speak to your people and speak loudly, clearly, and far beyond the words that are used. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. St. Augustine, three, 400 years after Christ, said that we have a really difficult time comprehending what good is. He said, if you say the word good, For just a second, like the sun peeking out from behind a cloud, you get a glimpse of goodness. But then it's kind of gone behind the cloudiness of our minds. He said, so so work with me for a second on good. Let's start simple. Think of good rolling farmland. You know, when you're driving up, going along northern New Brunswick on the Trans-Canada, and you see the St. John River Valley and the farms? Think of good rolling farmland for a second. Or think of being in a, in a building or a home that has been designed with exquisite proportion and beauty. Think of the beauty of an athlete's form as we watch the Olympics, a specimen of, of humanity that you, we don't, don't measure up to. <laughs> think of the goodness of a smile in a friend. Think of the goodness of when you were out in nature and the panorama of the whole thing just overwhelmed you for a moment. Think of a two or three month year old, a two or three month old baby whose smile cracks their face with pure joy. Think of the goodness of the friend, the goodness of health, some of the best moments in your life. And Augustine says, Why go on and on? This is good and that is good. Take away this and take away that and see good itself if you can. And in that way you will see God. Not good with some other good, but the good of every good. That gripped me back in February uh, as I was studying. And I thought, there's something there that I want to share. And so that scripture in James speaks to us about every good and perfect gift coming from above. And guys, there is a goodness of God that blazes behind the clouds of life. It is intense, it is amazing, 
And it's everything you could ever desire. There's nothing more you could want than that. But yet it is so difficult for us to truly believe it and to truly live it. In fact, we, we find ourselves thinking that some good things may come from God, but some other good things I'm gonna have to take for myself. We're torn by opposite desires because on the one hand, we've glimpsed the goodness of God, but on the other hand, there's things we want. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. And such a person who has gone down that path James says is double-minded, unstable in all they do. The fact of the matter is that we are often discordant beings. We hum a song of faith in one moment and then we pursue ungodly desires in the next. Anselm of Canterbury, a thousand years ago, clearly identified this war of desires. He spoke of our human will being divided into a desire for happiness on the one hand and a desire for goodness on the other hand. And they're like two parallel tracks. And a lot of times what happens is our desire to be good expresses itself in certain beliefs, but our desire to be uh, happy expresses itself in certain behaviors. And they often are on two parallel tracks and they don't meet. They are discordant. But there can be a convergence of these two desires when we find ourselves focusing on God. Because in God, the desire to be good and the desire to be happy come together. God is a source of all goodness and everything you are made for longs for his presence. And so in God, these two desires come together. There's a convergence. And in James 1.12 it says, blessed is anyone who endures temptation. You've endured the trouble of having these two desires that are fighting against each other. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Temptation's happening in the tension between the two tracks, but the tension is not forever. It's temporary. The psalmist said, I will yet see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you're living in a place right now where your desire to be happy and your desire to be good are really fighting each other, if you will be faithful, God will come through in this life and he will lead you someday into his presence where every desire is met. Absolutely every one of them. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 37.4, and it says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I note that he didn't say he'll give you some of them. He said he will give you the desires of your heart. Does that mean even the bad ones? I don't know. I think, though, the truth is that behind every human desire, there's a deeper and higher desire. Behind every low and frankly disgusting desire 
is a deeper, more meaningful desire. Think about it with me for a second. The desire behind every desire. You know people that are control freaks? And if you don't know anyone, that means I'm talking to you. (laughs) Behind that desire is a desire for harmony. You just want things to work okay. And, And who could bring more harmony than God as he exercises his control over the events of our lives? Debauchery is a great old word. It just means getting drunk and having sex with people. (laughs) Um, Behind that desire is a desire to live life to the full. And who could give you more life than God? Superficiality, turn on the television. It is great entertainment, apparently. But behind superficiality, I think, is people that are terribly insecure. They're afraid about how they look, how they will be perceived. They may be afraid that they can't be serious people, so they'll actually be superficial on purpose. But God can give us security. And even the person you meet who is arrogant, what they want is significance. They just want to matter. Again, only God can give those to us. So I have a question for you. What is your lowest desire you're you're dealing with right now? Now what is the higher desire that is behind it? God can fulfill our desires in two ways. The first is that he gives us gifts. God will give you good and perfect gifts. These are intermediary goodness. It's the people he puts in your lives. It's the provision he gives you. It's the house that you may enjoy, the home, the interesting moments. It's the satisfaction you may get from what you do. These are gifts from God. The other way he does it is he gives you himself. He gives you the giver. (laughs) And this is an immediate goodness. And let me return with you for a second to some thoughts from Augustine. In his book, The Confessions, where he did a really intense self-analysis of what was going on in his heart and mind as he journeyed towards God, he said that he realized he had a friend that he just loved this friend. This was his best friend. And then that friend got sick and died. And he felt like all love and life had gone uh, gone away from him. And that's when he realized that he had begun to love the gift more than the giver. And the contrast is not to not love the gifts so we can love the giver. It is to love the gifts in the giver. Think about that for a second. Every one of the gifts that's in your life, what if you love that gift in the giver? Not instead of the giver, and not ignoring them so you could focus on the giver, but it was all wrapped up in your love for God. And and if you can do that, if you can come to a spot where your real faith is in the giver, then you're not terrified anymore that the little gifts are gonna come and go. How many of us are terrified of commitment because we were terrified of being rejected or, or left? We're terrified to rejoice in the goodness of the moment because we do know (laughs) that life has ups and downs. But what if you don't have to worry so much if people come and go? 
What if the friend who is amazing one day is gone the next? But what if you know that the God that gave you that friend will give you more? What if you know that he in himself alone, if all other gifts are withdrawn for a season, is enough? Now you're not afraid. Now you can enjoy life. And in this way, we we avoid a a contrast, a false contrast that's out there in popular culture that says you can either have God or you can enjoy life. This actually comes from a narcissistic madman from the 19th century named Nietzsche, a philosopher. If you think that you're hearing cutting edge ideas in our world today and on social media, you're not. You're hearing Nietzsche. He painted a picture of following God as an extinction of desire. If you follow God, then all the things that should make the human heart powerful and strong are being extinguished. And he said, all you'll have left with is a pinched mouth, sterile little life of prayer and fasting. But isn't it true that every, in every aspect of life that our lower desires have to be channeled into higher desires to be happy? Your desires may be momentarily met at the bottom of a bag of Cheetos. But your higher desires for health, energy, and confidence require you to transcend that more often than not. The same is true spiritually. There is an ascending order of desire. It's quite an athletic imagery that James uses, actually. He's talking about there being trials, and then we develop endurance, and then we become mature or complete, and then we get the crown of life. And it's like the lower desire keeps being transcended and it keeps getting better and better and better. And on the other hand, he, he says there's a descending order of desire where we give in to desire. And then that becomes full on sin. And that sin sooner or later becomes death. But if we can move beyond that, there's something really incredible. A guy you wouldn't know named Tyler Roberts pointed out that following God is not an extinction of desire. It is the directing of desire to higher purposes that results in an amplification of life and power. Channeled, focused, directed to a purpose and making life richer as a result. I love the scripture from Acts 17, 28. In God, we live and we move and we have our being. Gratitude, it becomes our fundamental attitude in life as we receive these good gifts from God, as we reverently accept them and we know where they came from. Every good and perfect gift is from above. I'm so glad we're at this point in the message. My latest perfect and good gift from above and maybe the greatest, uh, at least it feels like it at this moment, is Piper Adams. This is my granddaughter. She was born two weeks ago to my son Josh and his wife Taylor, they're fantastic parents. And every time I hold that little girl, one, her head in that hand and her butt and her entire body in the other hand, I mean, she's so tiny. 
I look at her and I just whoosh with joy. It's unbelievable. It's something different than having my own kid even. Because I can give this one back too. And, uh, but as I hold this little miracle in my hands and I, I look at her, she does a little yawn and I'm transfixed. I'm like, that was the most amazing thing ever. When she was first born, it was like her eyes couldn't focus on me. She'd go, whoa, there you are. Oh, no. Oh, I kind of want to come back and uh, there you are. Oh, sorry. Couldn't control the eyes. But then in like day three or four, all of a sudden she's, oh, looking at me. And I'm like 30 minutes just looking at her and realizing, oh, there, I wonder if there's anyone else in the room. And I wonder if this is a bit how God feels about us as he looks at us. See, as I hold that little baby, I wonder what her life's gonna be like. I, I wonder who she'll grow to become. But yet God, when he holds us in his hands, he knows who he designed us to be. His joy must be greater. This sense of design actually runs through the whole passage that we, we read together in worship and that we're kind of looking and, and meditating on today. The sense of design runs through the whole passage. There's a Greek word that is really hard to translate into English because it's a very rich concept. The word is teleos, and we could translate that by saying it's something's reached its purpose, it's, uh, it's complete, it's perfect. Um, we might say uh, that when my little baby granddaughter grows up to be a young woman, that she's teleos now. She's, she's reached her goal. Um, if, if something is started, but it's going to need to be finished, it has to get to its end, its, its destiny. And, and, and the word we often use in English is perfect, but we don't use it like, like flawlessly perfect, unattainably. We mean that something has reached what it was designed to be. And so this word's peppered through our text. We've, I've just highlighted a couple of them here for you. Um, we'll see it, if you can, next slide, please. Uh, you'll see that it says uh, finish, that's teleos. Mature, that's teleos. And then in the next slide, full grown, that's teleos. And then perfect gift, every good and perfect gift is from above. And, and, and these words talk about design. They are actually words that pair very well with the final verse of this passage that says, um, he chose us, God chose us to, to, to give us birth through the word of truth that we, that we might be a kind of first, first fruits of what he created. And so teleos is this amazing idea that God designed us and has a design for our lives. Did you know that we are living though in a giant cultural experiment right now where we are thinking and acting like there is no creator? A very clear example of this is an influential uh, philosopher named Peter Singer. He holds a prestigious chair at Princeton University. If you were to take an ethics course in a university, or your children were, they would likely study this man's book. He's probably the most influential ethicist in the world today. His thoughts are actively influencing governmental policies regarding euthanasia, and his ideas for good and ill are at the core of animal rights. He proposes to think and act ethically, though, with no reference to God. 
with no reference to an idea of created order in our world and no reference even to conscience, which he thinks is just something that was developed through an evolutionary process and it may not be relevant for the needs of today. For instance, in the past, it would have been wonderful to have as many babies as possible, but maybe now we want to have less. So for him, there's no higher ethical principle than the idea of people having desires and preferences and being allowed to pursue those and making sure that as we pursue our desires and preferences, we don't interfere with others' desires and preferences. And he thinks you can do ethics with that one principle, no God, no created order, no conscience. So what conclusions do we come to in this thinking? And it's not just about his thinking, it's gonna relate to every area of our lives. What conclusions do we come to? Well, for one, he agrees with pro-lifers. He says that there's really no difference between the life of a baby inside the womb and outside the womb. The only difference is, is, that, is that he agrees, he thinks that if life's disposable inside the womb, it's disposable a few months after the womb. He's for infanticide. This is coming, my friends. He simply pushes the logical conclusion of us being merely animals with no God to its final conclusion. And so he thinks that if a baby is born and in the first few months it's evidence that this baby has a deficiency, that baby could be terminated. Perhaps that baby is so mentally deficient that we should think about stopping testing experimental drugs on the monkeys and test it on that baby. It's revolting, it's disgusting and it's completely logical. Because he says the baby has no preferences, the baby has no concept of itself as a being existing over time. The preferences of those that are alive can decide what happens to that baby. You can only imagine what his conclusions are regarding end of life when you're old and sick. But these atheistic ways of thinking are soaking into our culture at their very core. Governments govern like there is no God higher than them. We live in a life where people make sense of it without God, or they try to, they think he's an optional add-on, and if you're gonna put him in your life, don't tell me about it, and I don't wanna hear about it, keep it private. Because in the end, it's my life, my body, my choices, I am my own self-creation, and I am discovering and designing the real me. The sense of givenness of life is gone. We think it's our possession, nothing came before us, nothing's coming after, and nothing will tell me how to live it. But what if life is alone? What if we ultimately came from God and ultimately will return? What if life is a test to see if we will harmonize our desire for good with our desire for happiness by bringing it together in God? What if when we run from God, we are running from the good of all goods? and the designer of every cell of our body who alone can bring us into perfect harmony with the purposes that we were created to have. If so, then life without God is hollow at the core. Have people replaced the core action of doing good to actual people with posting the right opinion 
or the left opinion? Do we signal virtue while neglecting the hard work of becoming virtuous people? We don't know what life is about anymore. We knock down God from his throne of domination over us only to be replaced by being dominated by our insecurities, our emotions, our addictions, and our own confusions. Our lives are unmanageably messy and people sing songs about how wonderful the mess is. They don't think it's wonderful. They curse the God they don't even believe in and blame him for their problems. Psalm 14.1 sounds harsh when it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now lest that be taken the wrong way, being a fool does not mean that you are unintelligent. It's not quite the same thing. Have you ever met a person that has no emotional intelligence, but they're highly intelligent? Well, you too can have a person that has a great deal of intelligence, but is a fool. A fool has not figured out what life is about. They know all kinds of facts, but they don't know the big picture. They don't know that life comes from God, finds its meaning on God, and that their purpose will be found in him and that they will stand before him one day accountable. Because of this, over and over and over again in the Bible, like so many verses, it says the fear, as in the reverent respect of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. And we're going to be held accountable for whether we're wise or not. You know, you can't help if you were born dumb or smart. I mean, not much. But you can help if you're wise. And you know what? I've met a lot of people that maybe didn't think they were so smart that were very wise. And I'd rather be around those people than intelligent fools. If you want to be wise, and you're going to need to be wise, if you want to live a life of a joy and navigate this thing, then fear God, number one. But number two is embrace this process of becoming wise. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Telios, the goal, not lacking anything. When we realize that these trials and temptations and tests in our lives are able to be transformed for our good, we can become wise. When we realize that Jesus Christ endured all these trials and temptations and triumphed over them with the good, then we have someone that's with us in our own. And the third step for becoming wise is astoundingly simple. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. <laughs> That's all. And it will be given generously to all without finding fault. He gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. I love the Greek in this passage. I, uh, I looked at it and I thought, this is very vivid. So then I conferred with uh, Thomas and Dolores Dolhanty, who go to this church, and he was a Greek professor at one point, just to make sure this sounded about right. But in this English translation, you could, you could make a mistake. You could say, God, who happens to give generously to all without finding fault. Just like Nathan, who happens to live in Montreal, okay? But me living in Montreal is not core to who I am as a human being. That's just where I live right now. 
But in the Greek, it says that this giving is core to who God is. So here's, here's, here's my own translation, okay? This is the uh, New Nathan version. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask the giving one, God, who gives without an angle and without finding reasons not to give, and it will be given to you. The Greek just says, God's the giving one. Now, have you ever tried to give something to someone who wasn't expecting it? People are shocked. They go, why did you give this to me? Uh, what, What do you want? It's like when an acquaintance gives you a Christmas present and you're like, oh man, now I gotta buy you one. Or in business, someone does you a favor and you realize they just indebted you, it's all they did. It will be asked for in return. And the fact of the matter is, guys, we are human beings, we all have needs. And so we all give with an angle. We have an angle. I mean, come on, the flowers come home, what's your angle, man? Okay? Everyone has an angle because we have needs. But follow me on this one. God has no needs. He doesn't need your worship. What you do or don't know or don't do in the end is not going to affect his ability to be happy. Because God in his very being is giving and receiving. It's like the father in a moment in eternity. There's no like time in God, but but picture it more like sequence. The father explodes in a giving of life and love into the son and spirit. The son and the spirit share that life and love back and forth. And then they return it to the father in a beautiful, giving relationship. God does not need anything from you. But out of his overwhelming generosity, he erupts into love for you. And he wants you to experience his joy. You have thought of God as the demanding God. He just wants to share his joy. His ways are simply pathways to it. This is the giving God. And we so often, when we give, we give to those we feel are worthy of a gift. We assess them and evaluate them to see if they're worthy. But God gives generously without an angle, finding no reasons not to give. You qualify for God to give to you. He is not evaluating you today to see if you're good enough to be given to. His whole being is angled towards you. He has come to you in Jesus Christ and given everything that you may be renewed. And you know, like we gotta figure out what life is about. James 1.11 said that the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. We, we gotta stop living for lesser things and living like we're poor. If God is the giver, we are rich at every moment. All your life, God has been showering you with gifts. He gave you life. When you were born, your parents knew that something much greater than what they had done had happened at that moment. 
He gave you those moments of joy, those perfect days. He gave you that one family member who truly loved you. He gave you those moments when you looked at the sunshine dancing off the water, those moments of wonder. Every good and perfect gift is from above, above, and they were designed to do something. They were designed to bring you to the giver. Knowing God is life, life as it was designed to be. Loving this God is not obligation, but elation as life becomes a gift. And being in this God's presence is immediate joy. And he showers us with all these intermediate gifts that we're no longer afraid to rejoice in. Afraid that they'll leave us, that they'll go, because God is there behind. God has us. He's our constant source and he's our wisdom to navigate life. Because life is not perfect. Tragedies come, difficulties come. These are not from God. They are the result of people, families, and cultures living like there is no God and experiencing the separation from the very source of goodness itself as a result. But God has proved his goodness for us by entering into the separation in Jesus Christ, taking it upon himself and triumphing over it on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, God has co-opted evil. Good has won. So what is going on in your life today? What are the trials? What are the temptations? Let's look to the giving one now. Let's just trust that he loves us. Let's trust that he's rich. Let's trust that the love we lost does not mean that all love is lost from our lives. Let's rejoice in the moment. Let's be generous people because we know that God can, one of the easiest things he can ever do is fill your bank account. It's simple for him. Let's enter into the flow of his life and let's stop doubting. The one who doubts will not receive. It was a promise you read today. Start trusting God. And like, you know, we always say, receive the gift of salvation of Jesus Christ. You need to receive that gift today. If you haven't and you're here, that's why you are here. I want you to do it today. Say, I receive the gift into your life. Give him your life. Live on his design. But for those of us that have received the gift, why don't we live the gift? Thank you for your time today. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about Moncton Wesleyan, we invite you to visit our website at mw.church. We are here to help you with any questions you might have. See you next time.